Hi, this is Gary Meese, back with the case against, I'm, this is my second attempt to record this, uh, some technical problems yesterday, so I'm, I'm going to try again, and I'm going to get right into it. Uh, this is an important aspect of the case, often overlooked, uh, the Hollingsworth sighting of Damien Eccles on the side of the road. On May 5th, about 9.20 to 9.30 on May 5th, 1993, within a few hours after he had killed uh, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch just a few hundred feet away, he's in muddy clothes, he's seen by a whole family full of people who know him. And this evidence came up very, very early in the investigation and it helped to make Eccles a prime suspect. You'll see mm, there's a brief allusion to this this in one of the Paradise Lost movies and that's about it. This is, that, this is a very good example of the evidence that is left out of the, these propaganda pieces I, they really don't deserve the term documentary because they're not documentaries in the sense of, you know, object, an attempt at some sort of objective examination of the facts. It's a distortion of the facts to reach a, pre, a predetermined end, which in this case is to cast doubt at the very least on the guilt of the West Memphis Three. and as much as possible to make the police, prosecutors, and people of West Memphis, Arkansas look just as bad as possible. I think there are deeper motives involved in this. Uh, I think that the filmmakers Bruce Sinofsky and Joe Berlinger had deep contempt for uh, their subjects and I think it shows they're coming from a totally different worldview. They go into a world they absolutely have no understanding for and of and no sympathy for. And uh, they exploited their relationship with the, that they, de they developed a relationship with the parents of the dead children and then exploited that relationship to make them look foolish as, as foolish as possible and in one case to make in one case initially to make one of the parents look somewhat guilty or at least suspect and then later on of course they decided when that didn't work out so well they decided they'd go with another suspect so that's that's what you can expect in what has been termed the innocence fraud uh, documentaries, podcasts, books, and even songs uh, that you'll be seeing you'll you'll be seeing more and more of for a while until the public catches on that this is all just a big scam. And a lot of it started with West Memphis Three and Paradise Lost. Anyway, well, I'm gonna get into reading it before I burn up too much time and 
Uh, it turns out this doesn't go, if this doesn't go either, I'm not going to be able to uh, do a repeat. Well, I, I don't need to tell you that. You won't hear it. But I won't be able to do a repeat until next week. So uh, I've got other things. I've got some things going on. But anyway, uh, the title of the chapter from my book, Blood on Black, is We Saw Damien and Domini. Uh, I have three books on the case, Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, so two volumes said, really laying out the complete case, mostly based on information in the case files, with, with some interpretation and, and some outside information. And uh, a condensed, revised version um, called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. They're available, the books are available on Amazon in a very affordable Kindle format and also in a paperback format. Here we go. Those who depended on the Paradise Lost movies for information about the West Memphis Three Killers heard little about eyewitnesses who placed Damien Eccles near the scene of the murders. The jury who heard testimony from Narlene Hollingsworth and her son Anthony Hollingsworth in the Eccles-Baldwin trial labeled their stories honest in jury notes. Narlene called the police on May 9, 1993, which is just three days after the boys were found dead in a, a ditch. They'd been bound, they'd been stripped nude, bound, cut up. Two of the boys were cut up. All of them were beaten horribly to the point that it, the beatings would have killed them alone. Uh, two of them were drowned. One of them bled to uh, Christopher Byers. Michael and Stevie drowned even though they had injuries that probably would have killed them anyway. Uh, Christopher was beaten horribly, sexually mutilated. Stevie was also mutilated, though not sexually, and uh, drank and placed in water. So they, they made sure that Christopher Byers was going to be dead not that the other two were going to survive this horrible, horrible crime perpetrated by Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly Jr. May, so she called the police on May 9th, 1993. According to a handwritten note, she saw... They, the notes don't have the names exactly right. They, call, they tend to call Dominique Dominique. And they misspelled Damien, but I'm, I'm not going to try to correct that after this point uh, it, or stick with the explanation. Stick with the errors at this point. I'm just going to correct it. And if you want, really want to see what was in the police notes and the interviews, you can go to CallahanMySite.com and get see the originals. She saw Dominique and Damien walking, quote, walking from Blue Beacon toward Lakeshore Estates. I guess I have to, I, I feel like I need to explain things. And Blue Beacon is uh, the truck stop that was next door to the Robin Hood Hills woods where the boys were murdered. Uh, Lakeshore Estates is where Dominique Tear, who was Damien Eccles' 
pregnant 16 year old pregnant girlfriend and Jason Baldwin who was best friends blood brothers with Damien Eccles lived where Damien Damien hung out and essentially lived most of the time apparently though he did have a uh, a room at home in with his parents in another trailer park in West Memphis that somehow he shared with his sister I'm not really sure what this apparently she slept on the sofa quite a bit of the time okay she saw Damien and Dominey walking quote walking from Blue Beacon toward Lakeshore Estates they looked dirty LG Hollingsworth age 17 was at the laundromat at 9 30 p.m. it was noted According to Mrs. Hollingsworth, her nephew LG made the statement on Thursday that he knew about what happened before anyone else. LG has 666 on the side of his boots. Damien is mean and evil, according to Mrs. Hollingsworth. I covered a lot about LG Hollingsworth in the last episode, and I'm not going to get into it too much again, but uh, briefly, LG is... Narlene Hollingsworth nephew to make it as simple as possible there's some other family complications there and uh, he is somebody who's hanging out quite a bit with Dominique Tear much to the annoyance of Damien Eccles the next day at 4.05 p.m. that would have been May 10th Detective Mike Allen took an anonymous tip from, quote, an old white female who stated she had overheard that a dominee and Damien killed the three little boys and that LG, last name unknown, took and laundered their clothing. Caller stated that Damien had body parts in a box from the children. The caller didn't give her name and stated that she heard that LG's mother was going to lie about LG's whereabouts. At 4.20 that afternoon... Detective Charlie Dabbs and Lieutenant Diane Hester took a statement from Narlene Virginia Hollingsworth, a 42-year-old Lakeshore resident. Narlene, her husband, Ricky Sr., 37, and had, had four children who figured also in the narrative. Anthony Hollingsworth, who's 21, Ricky Hollingsworth Jr., 14, Tabitha, 16, and Mary, 10. Narlene told police what happened was Dixie Hollingsworth, I'm breaking again, Dixie Hollingsworth is um, the ex-wife of L.G. Hollingsworth's grandfather, which would also make her Narlene's ex-stepmother, I guess is one way to explain it. Uh, she's also known as, she's known as Dixie Hollingsworth because that's what Narlene calls her and knew her as, but she's apparently either remarried or gone back to a maiden name or something. But anyway, she's also known as Dixie Hufford and occasionally referred to as Dixie Hubbard, but her name is Hufford. What happened, Narlene told police, what happened was Dixie Hollingsworth had asked me to pick her up at where she works at a laundromat she said will you pick me up i get off at 10 i said yes i will 
Okay, I got ready to go and my husband went with me and my children were too. So that's six people in the car. On our way, coming down like you're going to Love's, which is a truck stop, I saw Dominie and Damien coming down the street. This was exactly 20 minutes till 10. Exactly, because we had our watches and we knew what time it was. Okay, they had dark clothing on and they were not cleaned. Dab says, You said at one time they were muddy all over. Marlene, They did have dirt on them. Yes, they did now. They was coming back towards Lakeshore this way. They were, it was a yellow a sign thing up and uh, some stand, stick standing up and then they were just before they got to there where they was. Okay, as we were driving by, she pointed the stick to us and it's right there on the off-ramp where as you go east down the interstate, the off-ramp to the service road, south service road is where the yellow stick or marker was. Uh, end quote. Uh, Nolene had turned her brights on, quote, so that I could get a good look at them to see who they were. Yes, I did. And I said, that's Dominie and Damien. No look like It is. And I got a good close look and said, it sure is. I really don't know Damien because I don't go around him from all the bad things I hear about him. But therefore, I don't let my children go around him. And Dominie, I've known her all of her life because I used to hold her on my hip when she was six months baby. I was upset about it for them being out that late at night and around that area, but you know, I was wondering what they were doing out at that time of night. My husband told me to quit worrying about it because they were out all the time. He said that he sees them all the time. So he told me to quit worrying about it. I don't know what LG is capable of, and I'm not saying that he would do it, and I'm not saying that he wouldn't, but I know Damien. Everybody said that Damien, I know that he's supposed to have 666 on his shoes. Uh, Diane Hester, Hester, the police officer, says, And you, your husband and your children saw him and Dominie both? Narlene, Yes, ain't no way they missed that. Okay. The layout on the, the roads is uh, they were going to Ingram Boulevard, which runs north-south, uh, but in West Memphis, there, it goes over the the interstates co-joined with two interstates, I-55 and Interstate 40 for roughly a mile and a half, two miles through West Memphis. Uh, then they split again. They go. There's two bridges that go across. Two bridges that go across to. Uh, Memphis and uh, I-55 continues south, I-40 continues east-west. Because of this convergence of highways and this just general placement in the middle of the country and uh, it's the first, you know, you can drive quite a distance before coming across, you know, a fairly large area coming down from St. Louis coming from Little Rock, even coming, uh, you know, not Memphis so much, because you will run into Memphis if you're going west, but, you know, it's it, there's not that much between uh, Memphis and Nashville except Jackson, Tennessee, which is just a moderate-sized town. But anyway, uh, there's a lot of traffic on there, and it's an important truck stop site. 
there's service roads that run uh, east. There's service roads that run east-west on either side of this highway, and they have retail areas and truck stops and blue bacon car wash, etc. Uh, the, Ing the Ingram Boulevard crosses over the there. There are two main roads that in that area that cross over. They have inter overpasses uh, across the interstates. One's, one is Ingram Boulevard, which is where the flash market is, where Dixie Hollings, Dixie Hufford was working. It crosses over to what was then the Southland Park dog track and is now a combination dog track and casino. And the major source of revenue in this town that's supposedly a, just a fundamentalist Christian town, they do have a lot of Christians there, as they do in almost every other city in the United States. Uh, I'm not arguing that point. Uh, but their main source of revenue is from the drinking and feasting and mo mo most importantly the gambling that goes on in uh, Southland Park and that institution's been there for decades and decades and there was gambling and various forms of vice was one of the prime industries that predated that dog track which is one reason the dog track found favor there so the point is that West Memphis is has been historically a place where a lot of vice has gone on and has been somewhat tolerated it's also a heavily trafficked area and they see many, many people from many, many parts of the United States and indeed the world traveling through town. So odd, odd, odd persons just showing up somewhere is not something that, uh, you know, long hair, tattoos, black t-shirts were not something that was that unusual in West Memphis or Crittenden County in general at that time that wasn't was not what everybody did it was not that unusual Damien was distinctive because he wore all black most of the time um, okay that's enough explanation oh the other street that comes up and down is 7th Street and that would probably be they may have gone down Missouri and got on the service road, or they may have gone down 7th and got onto the service road. Missouri would have been further to the west of uh, 7th Street, and it's a main thoroughfare through town. Anyway, let me get back to this. Uh, Darlene uh, was interviewed again on May 20th, and she repeated a lot of that information. She's very consistent in her story, but this is what she told police on May 20th. 
I left home about 9.30. I was going down the South Service Road, and I looked to the right, and I saw Damien and Domini walking. They were dirty and muddy. Go to the laundromat, Dixie said. Uh, LG just left, and I said, I just saw Damien, and she asked, was Domini with him? And I said, yes. Okay. Narlene testified in the Baldwin Eccles trial on May 3rd, 1994. And she said this, Well, see, we spent most of our day together, Dixie and I did, and we had lunch together, and she asked me that day would I come back and pick her. Well, she got off at 10, but we got there a little early. She said she left home at exactly 9.30 p.m. and had all her children along with a young friend packed into a red 1982 Ford Escort. So that would have been a total of seven people, including three or four children, depending on how you want to characterize the older, the teenagers, into um, a station wagon. So it's a little crowded, but you know, it's not as if you can't get seven people into a Ford Escort station wagon. You can even go pick somebody up, such as Dixie Hufford, and make room for a short two-mile trip with a little bit of discomfort. Bob Ruff made way, way, way too much out of the, the squeezing everybody into this car. It's, it's, it's doable. I'm not saying it's comfortable wouldn't be comfortable probably but certainly doable John Fogelman asked this is the assistant prosecutor of the trial asked as you were approaching loves and blue beacon uh did you see anybody there on the service road Narlene yes we did we saw Damien and Dominique Damien had on a pair of black pants and a dark shirt Dominique had on a pair of tight pants you know fit tight and she had flowers looked like white flowers to me on her pants which I know they were her clothes because two or three days before that I saw her with those same clothes on Fogelman all right uh, in fact Dominique's tried to get you to say something different hasn't she now Dominique and uh, Narlene consider themselves family even though they are not related Technically, they're not related by marriage or blood. Dominique's family apparently had close ties with the Hollingsworth family. Uh, her, one of her aunts, I think at least one of her aunts, well, one of her aunts is Dixie Hufford. Another aunt is an aunt that she is, she and her mother Diane Tier or was, uh, was an aunt that she and her mother, Diane Tier were renting their trailer from in Lakeshore Estates. So it's a double family connection there at least. And, uh, you know, these, these people tend to be, the people in the trailer parks tend to be fairly close-knit within their social group. Um, there's a lot of seems to be not everyone obviously but a lot of a lot of people seem to have a lot of social interaction 
uh, so Marlene had known Dominie since she was a baby. Fogelman asked her, all right, um, in fact, Dominique's, okay, Dominique's tried to get you to say something different, hasn't she? Val Price, Eccles' attorney, interjected, uh, judge objection, totally inappropriate, Your Honor. But uh, Narlene was willing to talk and said, I'll answer. Judge David Burnett said, wait just a minute. Uh, this was followed by laughter in the courtroom and a bench conference. Price said the testimony would be a hearsay response. The court agreed. Fogelman said he might call Dominie on the matter, but, quote, she might lie. Eventually they moved on. Fogelman, now, Darlene, when you saw these uh, Damien and Dominie on the service road, did you do anything with your lights? Uh, Narlene, I put the bright lights on to be sure that it was them because I didn't realize there for a second how many I really had in the car with me and it was getting late and Dominie was only 14. She's a little older than that. So I wanted to give them a ride back home. See, I knew I had a few minutes to get to the laundromat. I looked back and my ex-husband said, where are you going to put them? And I said, well, I'd put Mary in Dominie's lap. And I looked over and he said, where are you going to put the other one? In Damien's lap? And I looked at Damien and I said, No, I don't think so. Under questioning by another Eccles defense attorney, Scott Davidson, she said, I wanted to stop and pick him up, give him a ride so, so Dominique wouldn't be on the street. I'm a real funny person about that, and I don't think young children ought to be on the street after dark. She's also wanted to stop because, quote, I just started feeling like all of a sudden I wanted to throw up. I stopped for a second and then went on because they kept hollering. The kids kept hollering, let's go on, let's go. You can get sick when we get there. <laughs> I mean, I've read this many times and it's still, I laugh. And anyway, laughter broke out in the courtroom again. Baldwin attorney Paul Ford correctly predicted that the prosecution ultimately would imply at least, I, I put argue here, I think they implied in their in a closing statement that she had mistaken Baldwin for Dominey that evening. On May 25th, 1993, Anthony Hollingsworth, Darlene's son, gave a handwritten statement to police. Wednesday night I was at my mom and dad's house when the phone rang at 9.15 p.m. and it was my grandmother, which was Dixie Hollingsworth, Dixie Hufford, she told us to come and get her from work. We walk out and get Mom's car, Anthony, Ricky, Tabitha, Matt, Narlene, Sombra, Little Ricky. I'm not sure who Matt is. Sombra is the uh, uh, Little Ricky's girlfriend. And left to go pick up Dixie. We get on the service road and we're just going west of 7th, Avenue, 7th Street. We saw Damien and Dominique, and they were on the south side of the South Service Road. They were wearing black clothes that were muddy. It was about 9.30 p.m. We went to Flash Market and picked up Dixie and took her home, and then we went back to our house and didn't see Damien and Dominique on the road. Anthony also testified on May 3rd, immediately preceding his mother, May 3rd, 1994, he testified he, his brother, his two sisters, his mom, and his dad, 
and his little brother's girlfriend, Sambra, had gone to pick up his grandmother at a laundromat near Southland, Do Southland Park dog track next to a flash market. He recalled the time as 10.30, but wasn't sure. Quote, that was a year ago, unquote. He said he saw Damien and Dom Dominie, his girlfriend, by the side of the road wearing black, dirty clothes. Anthony said she had black pants on with sort of a black shirt. The shirt was black, but the pants had white flowers on them. With the May 25th statement as reference under questioning by John Fogelman, he agreed that he had given the time as 9.30 then and had stated the clothes were not merely dirty but muddy. Other members of the Hollingsworth family did not testify in the trial but gave statements to police. Tabitha, 16, told Dabs on May 20th, Well, first that night we were going to get my aunt from work, the aunt being Dixie Hufford, and LG seen Damien Nim walking, walking back from over there by that place where them kids got killed at. They were coming down by Loves. They right beside the place because they was walking back this way, walking toward Loves. Well, Damien uh, had a uh, Domini had black pants on with holes in the knees, and she had a long, on a long black shirt, and he was wearing all black. He had black boots on black shirt, black pants on, and they were muddy. No doubt in my mind, I seen them. They were all muddy. She said they were going to pick up her grandmother at the laundromat at about 9 or 9.30, going down the South Service Road toward Ingram Boulevard to Flash Market. She said she and Domini, quote, used to hang around a lot when we were in school, unquote, and that she had been introduced to Damien's, Damien at Domini's house. He just lived right behind us. Well, he didn't then, but I think he may have in the past. I know he lived in Lakeshore Estates at some point, and he may have lived behind them at that time. Um, I think he's a devil worshiper. I don't like him. He makes signs on the street and all of that, and he go back under the bridge and makes of the devil. She said she, Dominique knew Eccles was a devil worshiper. She doesn't say nothing about, I guess she don't care. She also knew Jason. I don't know his last name. I know where he lives, though. Yep, very good friends. They walk around with each other all the time. They act strange all the time. Uh, on December 7th, 1993, Ricky Sr., who had by this time had gotten a divorce from Narlene, I think they eventually reconciled, uh, Anyway, he gave this statement. On 5593, I, Rick Hollingsworth, was in a 1982 Ford Escort station wagon with my ex-wife, Narlene, Anthony, Tabitha, Mary, and little Rick at about 9, 9 and at between 9 and 10 p.m. We were going to get Dixie from where she works on Ingram. We were on the South Service Road between Blue Beacon and Love's Truck Stop when... Arlene saw two people that she said were Damien and Domini. I did see the two people, but I didn't look close enough to say who they were, but I did see that they had long hair. Arlene thought it was strange and asked if she ought to turn around to give them a ride. I told her no, that I'd seen them walking all over the place and that they were always walking. On May 20th, 1993, 
Dixie Hufford, 50, said Narlene and Ricky Hollingsworth had picked her up from work a few minutes before 9 p.m. that night and taken her home. And let me just say briefly that those who re read this sort of statement and just assume, well, there are only two, only two people picked them up because Dixie said that Narlene and Ricky picked them up, but they didn't say anything about the children. Well, nobody, nobody in their right mind who's not got something, some sort of disorder would say, Narlene, Ricky, Tabitha, Mary, Anthony, Sombra, and little Rick, little Ricky, or whoever else I left, uh, whoever else I left out, whatever that long list of people, picked them up. They would mention the the drivers, the two adults, and the children would just simply not be mentioned. Anybody with any common sense would know this. Does Bob Ruff know this? He probably does, but he chooses to ignore things like that. As predicted, prosecutors did try to use the sighting to place Baldwin at the scene. Uh, Fogelman worked it into his closing argument. Let's talk about Damien Eccles or an accomplice. Jason Baldwin or an accomplice causing the deaths of these boys. As the court instructs you, some of this evidence is only to, as to one, some of it is as to both. In this case, you've got evidence that about 9.30 sometime between 9.30 and 10 on May the 5th, this is the area of the crime scene, and somewhere in this area, Damien Eccles, who by his own admission dresses very distinctively and stands out in a crowd, he is seen by somebody who's seen him hundreds of times, Narlene and Anthony Hollingsworth. And he's seen with somebody they identify as Damien's girlfriend. They're muddy, dirty, and they're here about 9.30 or 10, which Damien denies. Now, all of y'all, I don't think any one of you could forget Anthony and Arlene's testimony. I got to thinking about it later, and, you know, we laughed. We all laughed. You laughed. We laughed. The defense attorneys laughed. Everybody laughed. They were dead serious. And you don't pick your witnesses, and because they're simple and they're not highly educated, that should be no reason to discount anything they said. Think about what they said and really how they said it. I submit to you, you'll find that they were highly credible and that they did see Damien Eccles on this service road between 9.30 and 10 on May the 5th, 1993. Now, who he was with, draw your own conclusions. Says his girlfriend, and they describe her as having red hair and long. You got a picture of Jason Baldwin at the time of his arrest. Nothing wrong with having long hair, and the picture in there is not shown to show that he's a bad person because he got long hair. But think about that. Think about who Damien was with on May the 5th. The prosecuting attorney, which is very much like a district attorney, uh, Brent Davis, didn't mention Baldwin in his portion of the closing statement, focusing instead on the credibility of the Hollingsworth testimony. And it's kindly funny, you know, at one point they want to believe Narlene, but they don't want to believe Narlene. 
I don't think Narlene lied to you when she said she saw Damien out there. And once you accept that, and why in the world is Damien and the rest of his group lying to cover him? Where was he on the 5th? What difference does it make? Why don't he get up here and level with us? Why heck, I was going down to Love's truck stop on the 5th. Put Domini up here let her tell you what they were doing. But if Anthony and Arlene are telling you the truth, and you know, you heard her say about them getting in the car, but she wasn't going to have them in the car, she wouldn't let her kids sit on his lap. You know who was out there. I mean... Damien himself admits what a distinctive-looking character he is, and you wouldn't drive by and miss with your bright lights on at night if you knew who he was, and she knew who was out there. And if he's out there, then he's lying to you, and if he's lying to you, his whole family is lying to you. And the question I got for you is, if they're lying to you about all that, why, why do they have something to hide? I put it to you, they do. It's unlikely that the Hollingsworths would be mistaken in identifying Eccles, but how likely is it they were mistaken about Domini? Baldwin and Domini were close enough in size, hair color, and dress to be mistaken for each other at a glance in poor lighting. But according to Dennis Dink Dent, Jason Baldwin's mother's erstwhile boyfriend and a habitual small-time criminal. Uh, Baldwin showed up at home around 9 or 9.30, which means he couldn't have been walking along the service road between 9.30 and 10. Dominique's alibi wasn't particularly strong because it was not corroborated by anyone other than her mother, but the story from the tears was consistent. No one other than the Hollingsworths placed Domini anywhere but at home that evening, though Damien at one point claimed she had been over at his parents' trailer that evening. Yeah, and what he, what had happened is, in some consultations with his defense attorneys, after his arrest, before the trial, obviously, in the summer, I think it was in July, which would have been a month or so after he was arrested. Um, he claimed that Jennifer Bearden had said that she had tried, who was this 12-year-old who was the 18-year-old Baldwin's, quote, other girlfriend, unquote, um, had tried to call Damien's, had called Damien's home at around 8 or 8.30 and Eccles' mother picked up the phone, said he wasn't there, and she would have to call back later. Well, Damien claims that he instructed grandmother to do this because Domini was over there and he didn't want to create a scene because Domini was already jealous of him talking. He didn't say all this, but this is part of what was going on, is Domini was very jealous of Damien talking on the phone all the time to what was known as the phone call girls. Domini had the impression Damien was talking a lot to Holly George, who was a friend of Jennifer Bearden's, and um, and he gave the impression to Domini that Holly George was Jason Baldwin's girlfriend. 
Now, Jason Bowen had a girlfriend named Heather Quiet at the time, so I guess the question is, uh, was also raised, how many girlfriends did Jason have? But the fact is, as Holly, Holly George said, is said that she was never Baldwin's girlfriend, was never interested in him. So it was all just a fat, anyway, this was a fabrication that Eccles had given his pregnant girlfriend as he attempted to uh, work his way into the affections of this 12-year-old. He's 18, she's 12. The only evidence of Dominique's possible involvement on any level is in the statements from the Hollingsworth, who clearly bore her no ill will. I think that's really an understatement, by the way. They, Darlene seemed to be very protective of Dominique, as did, as we shall see, as did Dixie Hufford. Darlene, in particular, seemed oblivious to possible implications of the signing. And let me interject again. I talked to her in 2013. She told the same story and really seemed to not quite put together the fact that she was so strongly implicating Damien Eccles in this crime. But she was just simply stating what she saw. I mean, I found it kind of odd, but it was convincing in its own way as she didn't seem to bear she did she obviously didn't like or trust Damien Eccles and she regarded him as being a bad guy and she was protected of Domini but at the same time she never said oh I know he killed those children she didn't say that she didn't say it in the testimony she just saying what she saw that evening Anyway, uh, police also talked to Dixie Hufford, 50, on May 20th, 1993, before the arrest, after a tipster called into the West Memphis Police Department. The note on the tip said, Boone called, stated, the woman that works at the laundromat on Ingram, her name is Dixie, Dixie told someone, that two boys and a girl came into the laundromat about 10 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. on Wednesday to clean up. They had mud and blood on their clothes. Dixie is supposed to be related to the one of them. Only name Boone knew was Hollingsworth. Ridge, Ridge and Gitchell, Brian Ridge is a detective and chief inspector for West Memphis Police Department, Gary Gitchell, conducted the interview that evening at Hufford's apartment. The official record gives no indication that the tip was discussed, though perhaps it was cleared up informally. <laughs> and this is, personally, this is very frustrating. There are questions about LG, there are questions about, obviously, about Dominie, there's questions about what actually she saw at that trailer, and I mean, at, at the laundromat. Uh, where did they come up with this idea that they were people were going people were going in there cleaning up particularly LG was going in there uh, washing clothes that there was mud and blood on the clothes he was washing up uh, these sort of stories were floating around and it would have been nice to get a fuller uh, 
interview with Dixie on the record saying what it is she saw that evening. Anyway, uh, she didn't. So she didn't. They didn't have much information on. They didn't have any information on what, about how this tip was cleared up. But uh, Dixie Hufford did have much to say about Dominie and Damien. Dixie stated that she feels that Damien does control Dominie and that she is fearful for her. Dixie stated that she believed Dominie was at home sick that day and that Dominie's mom was home. Dixie stated that she does not like Damien. Dixie knows Jason Baldwin and knows that Damien and Jason are very close friends. Dixie feels that Dominie's mom knows some things but won't tell because of her fear for Dominie. Damien controls Dominie. In a phone interview in March 2013, Darlene Hollingsworth revisited her story as told in 1993 to, to me, and she stuck adamantly to the fact that she had seen D D Dominie walking with Damien. No new details or twists had been added over time. Unfortunately, a computer glitch destroyed my notes on that particular interview. And uh, I simply had to, but <laughs> she didn't say anything I hadn't heard before or read before. And she was, you know, Quite an interesting interview with the very much the same sort of um, rhetorical style that you you got some of a flavor of in the uh, the transcripts. I'd love to see video of her testimony, and I think there's a bit somewhere. I know I've seen that, but I I'd like to see the whole testimony. Maybe I'm. There may be the whole testimonies there, and I just haven't looked lately. Uh, but I don't think so. The uh, this was some very damning evidence against Damien Eccles. Damien Eccles had an opportunity to confront this evidence and refute it, if he or will attempt to refute it. He had. Jennifer Bearden had been subpoenaed and she could have been called and said, well, I was talking to Damien at 9.20 that evening, so he couldn't possibly have been out by the side of the road at 9.30, as Arlene Hollingsworth described. Problem is, is Damien, Damien's alibi included the fact, and, and now it's it's his main alibi now. It's part of a larger alibi that he stopped using. Uh, he had a visit to the San family friends of Sanders as part of his alibi. It was pretty much destroyed in court. It was destroyed in court. It wasn't pretty much destroyed. It was destroyed in court. Uh, the witnesses simply gave bad information. Uh, they made a number of unforced errors, and I've gone into that elsewhere, which made, stopped, made them not credible. So that alibi didn't work. His other alibi, which he uses now, he was talking to girls all that evening, and that was part of the alibi then, but they never brought the girls to the stand. Well, guess what? Guess why? Holly George offered no alibi for 
Damien Eccles that evening. Jennifer Bearden offered no alibi. She never said she talked to, she said she did not talk to Damien Eccles between about 4.30 in the afternoon and about 9.20 or 9.30 at night. So if he wasn't talking to the girls as he claimed, then what was he doing? Well, we know what he was doing. He was getting drunk and killing little boys, but, and in fact, she asked him, we get into this in the phone call girls chapter, but she asked him where he'd been, and he said he'd been out with Jason Baldwin. So if they brought Jennifer Beard into the stand, all that would have been aired. And there's a good chance they would have believed enough of Jennifer's story to make Damien look more guilty while still maybe she wouldn't be that credible on when she actually talked to Damien because, in fact, in later years, she indicated that maybe she talked to him later that night instead of at 9.20, but she was supposed to be talking. She was very scared of her mother. She's a 12-year-old girl who really wasn't supposed to be talking to this 18, weird, creepy 18, you know, who was known for stalking children, etc. Uh, this weird, creepy guy from West Memphis Trailer Park uh, that she met at the skating rink. He's older than a lot of the kids there. According to Jesse Miskelly, he's hanging around checking out the boys. I, you know, just uh, to me, just as creepy and as degenerate a character as you can find. And there are plenty of creepy degenerates in this story. I just got a note on the podcast today about some other creepy degenerates in the story, and I, I don't, uh, I don't dispute the fact that they're creepy and that they're degenerates. Apparently. They just don't seem to have had anything to do with the crime. There's no evidence they had anything to do with the crime. And that's true for some other people who are really horrible people. Horrible, horrible people. James K. Martin. The, the note today was about Richard Cummings. Look at, go to Callahan and look at callahanmyslide.com and look at the entries on Richard Cummings. And you'll see that the police did a fairly extensive investigation of the guy on pretty flimsy evidence. I mean, somebody thought he was creepy and they find some weird stuff in his apartment, but, you know, that doesn't mean he's a killer. Uh, that was the case, then there, we'd have about 20 killers <laughs> in this case because there's some really creepy people here, weird, creepy people. And Richard Cummings... That's the impression you get from the evidence there. I don't, I don't know the man, never met him, never will, I'm sure, and I'm not suggesting that he, anything other than what the impression it is you get from the evidence in the case. But same with James K. Martin, except he's a convicted sex offender who's on, was on the sex offenders list. And by the way, I'll mention the fact that Anthony Hollingsworth was also on the sex offenders list. So, uh, you know, that, and people make a big deal out of that. Bob Ruff actually let the idea float around. Well, where was Anthony Hollingsworth 
all this killing was going on. Well, there's no evidence. There's zero evidence linking Anthony Hollingsworth to this killing in any manner, in any way, except that he saw Damien on the side of the road. But, you know, Ruff lets all sorts of things fly and all sorts of really dangerous ideas fly around in his, the comments that he doesn't attempt to forestall or edit or knock down heavily most of the time. Only when he gets a certain kind of pressure, a certain kind of legal pressure, does he seem to do that sort of thing. Otherwise, he's free to make innuendo about all sorts of people. I'm surprised he hasn't asked where John Fogelman was that evening. Fogelman, does Fogelman have an alibi? I don't know. Now, they didn't call Dominey either. Dominey could have said, well, I talked to, uh, I wasn't by the side of the road, but I did talk to Damien at 10 o'clock that night. She's part of his alibi. And they, but, you know, she would have had to answer all sorts of questions, such as, you know, well, you were arguing with Damien. What were you arguing about? And there would have been a you know, I don't know if, you know, she's pregnant, she's a young girl. I don't know how tough that would have been. Probably not very tough. Uh, but they could, have, they could have brought her up to the stand. They could have brought Dink Den up to the stand, who, who uh, said that Jason got home at 9 or 9.15 or 9.30 around, but he said basically she got, he got around home at the time, a time close to when Jason's mother called and his, his, when she went on break and his mother went on break at 9.30 at night. So Jason claims he was home much earlier that evening, but there's zero evidence of that except for one except for statements from one person, the, probably as, as poor a, a alibi witness as you could find, which is Jason Baldwin's little brother, Matt. Let's give Matt credit for sticking by his brother, but he would have been destroyed in, in a cross-examination in a trial. Anyway, that's it for this week uh, on the case against. I'm continuing to do some research on uh, the Central Park Five, and I've really, it's, I've really, there's a bigger story, bigger picture there to me that I want to lay out. And it's going to take me some time to do it and do, to do it properly, including doing some research into some facts that were thro are thrown out in, in not just there, but in some other movies. Uh, but I expect to get that done in the next two weeks or so. And so I'm going to take a break away from the West Memphis Three case for an episode or perhaps two. And I'm going to do that more often, I think, in the future. As I'm not, I, my main interest is the West Memphis Three case, but I'm also very interested in this phenomenon of that Ro, Roberta Glass probably or William Ramsey, who are both both on this my side of the the street on the West Memphis Three guilt, 
So I do follow them and pay attention to what they do and say, but uh, Roberta Glass, I think came up with the innocence fraud tag for what we see in making a murderer, the staircase, uh, a lot of these true crime shows. And it is in West Memphis three, Amanda Knox and it is fraud. So I'm going to, with that, I'm going to sign off. I've got some things to do. Hope you, all of you have a good week. And I hope to be back again next week with the next episode of The Case Against. Thank you for listening.